might need this Bible. I don't have the whole thing memorized. Indeed, we are here this morning to worship the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. As the book of Hebrews suggests, the Holy Spirit, through the mystery of God, has drawn us up into the presence of the triune God, of the saints gone on before us, in order that we may worship together. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, this morning, we agree with your word that we are sinful creatures. We have not done as we should. We have not done the things that we should have done. And we have done things we should not have done. We've chased after our own desires. In the name of and for the sake of our Redeemer, we confess and repent of our sin. Help us to walk uprightly and to live lives worthy of our high calling. Your word instructs us that if we confess your, our sin, you are faithful to forgive. The gospel tells us that there is therefore no condemnation for those in Christ. Father, this morning we lift up those around the world who are struggling with strife, with various afflictions, a world without peace, a world in which the hand of the evil one seems to appear everywhere. And we pray for the missionaries who are persecuted for the sake of the gospel. We pray that you would continue to strengthen their faith, that your word might go forth. We pray for the leadership of our country, our local leaders. We pray that they might yield and bend their wills to your will, Father, and their governance. Pray for the leadership of our own church. We pray your continued blessing on them, that they continue to seek to serve you, to serve your people as they serve you. There are many on our prayer list who are suffering, Father, with afflictions, illnesses. Some are struggling with grief. There are so many things that come into our lives, Father. Our prayer list has praises as well. But we lift those before you this morning, those who struggle, those whose belief may be challenged by their circumstances. We pray for your strength over them. We pray for the ministry of this church, that it continue to minister that we continue to minister to each other and that our ministry reaches out into the community, that we be a light, a shining light on a hill. And Father, finally, we pray for our own personal holiness. Help us, Father, through your spirit to be a holy people, a compassionate people, a people after your own heart. These things we ask through Christ our Redeemer. Amen. Our scripture passage this morning will come from the sixth chapter of Ephesians. As you turn there, uh, it's important for you to note that Paul's writing this from an imprisonment. He is locked up for the gospel. Now, he's not, according to scripture, he's not locked up in a jail cell. But his freedom has been greatly restricted. He is allowed to have visitors, to speak uh, with people. But his missionary efforts have been stalled. And yet, he pens this wonderful letter to the church at Ephesus. Beginning in verse 10, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil 
in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we ask you for your blessing this morning on the reading and sharing of your holy word. May your spirit enlighten our minds to the truths of your word and the glories of Christ Jesus. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. It was an age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. This is the opening line from Charles Dickens' classic book, A Tale of Two Cities, published in 1859. One of the themes, the central themes of this book is oppression, oppression of the poor, oppressed people that had no power to stand against their elite enemies. And finally, when they had experienced enough oppression, enough tyranny, these oppressed people made a unified stand. This book is a historical novel of the French Revolution. And Dickens was seeing those same themes that had occurred in France beginning to appear in his beloved England's culture. And that's why he wrote the book. But it's how the oppressed made their stand that concerns Dickens. It disappoints Dickens. Those who had cried for justice for so long, those who had been subject to the will and whim of the elites, resorted to mistreatment and violence of their opposition when they did make their stand. The same treatment they had been victims of for all these years, the same misery, when they made their stand, they inflicted on their opposition. Now, we live in a culture today that brings us a new and crazy headline every five minutes. And because of this, we don't really know who to believe anymore, do we? We no longer trust our government leaders, and we can scarcely tolerate someone whose political ideology differs from ours. Instead, we seek to oppress their words and their ideas. I think these last 18 months is a very good example of that. We have become more and more divided. We trust others less and less. Why is all this happening? How do we as Christians get drawn into this? It seems like one question simply leads to another. Who's the real enemy? Is it the guy with a different ideology than mine? We have to ask as believers, how are we supposed to stand against this? How do we survive in this world that has seemingly gone mad? Well, for starters, we need to take this fact seriously. Evil spiritual forces are at work in this world 
And the followers of Christ will encounter the devil's opposition. Therefore, we must resist through the might of God. We are to make a stand against evil, but not with the violence as the Dickens characters did. So let's consider these words this morning that clearly identify our opposition and how we are to make a stand against the opposition. In these words, we can find the answers to those questions, real-life answers for real-life problems. So what Paul initially is telling the people, followers of Christ will encounter devil's opposition. In order to counter that, we must understand first who the opposition is. Now Paul opens this section in verse 10 with the word finally. I don't want us to go past that word finally too quickly. It would be very easy to simply understand, okay, finally, Paul's wrapping this up. Because that's what he's doing. He is wrapping it up. But just like the opening line from Dickens, Paul is telling us much more than that. He's doing more than just beginning his conclusion. I want us to kind of take a look back through the epistle to the Ephesians. And let's see what Paul said. He says, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in his opening verses, right after his greeting. He speaks of our being chosen before the foundation of the earth, that we should be holy and blameless. He speaks of our adoption and our redemption through the blood of Christ and the forgiveness of our sins. He speaks of our inheritance and our sealing with the Holy Spirit. All of this just in the opening sentence. That alone should be cause for celebration. Just those first few words. The book of Ephesians is really a theological masterpiece. If you've spent any time with it, I know some of us are involved in the Wednesday night study. I think Kevin Gardner will be here next week. And as in the past, he has been preaching through the book of Ephesians. I'm preaching from Ephesians today, so you're getting a lot of exposure to it. In this letter... Paul tells us he's revealed the great mystery of God. He's told us what God has done. He's told us why he did it. And he told us that he accomplished all of this through Christ Jesus. And he goes to great lengths in this letter to explain to the church who she is and why she was created. And Paul encourages this church at Ephesus to live lives that are worthy of the high calling. He provides examples of how they're to do this with encouragement not to go back to the old self. He reminds them, he reminds us that we have put on Christ and put off our old selves. Throughout the letter, Paul celebrates the Christian journey as being in Christ or in the Lord. Believers in Christ have received all the spiritual blessings and resources because of that participation in Christ's divine life through faith in him. Now, the strength they would need, the strength that we need to confront evil is found in Christ via our union with him. So what Paul is telling them as he begins this section It's a summary of the book. He's going back and taking us through it. Things he's already talked about. And God knew that in spite of all that he has done on our behalf, on behalf of the church, on behalf of individual believers, that dark spiritual forces still existed. And they would still have to be faced by believers. Even though as believers, we do live in the best of times. Dark times remain, and the worst of times are often no more than a breath away. So it's with the opening word, finally, Paul draws the reader back through, but the word also points forward. In addition to closing out his remarks, he's telling the church, trouble has come, trouble is here, and trouble will come again. 
And the followers of Christ will have to persevere in the face of evil over and over and over. In fact, in chapter 5, he says to make the best use of time because the days are evil. Now, Paul's own experiences in the latter half of the book of Acts should serve as all the evidence the church at Ephesus needed and all the evidence that you and I need of just how evil operates in this world and how prevalent it is. As you recall, as Paul goes through his journeys, he encounters evil spirits over and over and over. So let's take a quick walk through Acts. In Acts 14, we find Paul being stoned because he preached the gospel. Just before that event, we hear the names of Zeus and Hermes, mythological Greek gods. In Acts 16, Paul confronts a spirit of divination. And what is his reward for that? He's locked up and beaten. In chapter 17, he comes to Thessalonica. He proclaims the good news. He encounters trouble, and he has to flee the city by nightfall. Now, in Acts 19 is where we find Paul in Ephesus. And for about three months, he is able to teach in the synagogue. And people seem to accept what he's saying, but that doesn't last long. As with everywhere Paul goes, trouble soon comes. This time, however, Paul doesn't flee. He simply relocates within the, within the area. And he's there for two years. And during this two years of his teaching, he cast out many demons and performs many healings. So once again, we see all these encounters with evil spirits, dark forces. Now, I want to share a story with you from Acts 19, from Paul's time at Ephesus. Beginning in verse 13, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. But who are you? Who are you? And the man in whom the, was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now that story spread throughout the area quite rapidly. They didn't have social media, but it spread like wildfire. And because of this story, many confessing Christians, believers, came forward with confessions of their own. Christ followers confessed that in spite of their relationship to Christ, they were still practicing dark magic, magic arts. So I hope by now you've kind of, just with that brief tour through Acts, you've seen how much evil was, was in the area and how much of it Paul encountered by trying to take the gospel forward. He encountered evil spirits, evil institutions, evil people, and evil practices. Now, right before Paul heads toward a fate that he knows awaits him, remember, he's in prison right now, and he's waiting. He's waiting for his final hearing about all this trouble he's caused. He's already had a couple of hearings, but Paul has status as a Roman citizen. So the leaders are kind of not sure they should make a bad judgment against Paul. So they hear him, and then they want to pass the buck. I'm going to let the next guy up, up the food chain uh, decide what happens to Paul. Now Paul calls on the elders of the church of Ephesus, and he reminds them of the manner of life that he lived while he was with them. And he is going to give them a warning 
about the evil that is to come. He tells them to persevere, to pay attention to the church for fierce wolves will come in to cause harm to the flock. Men from within the church itself will begin to twist scripture in an order to draw the disciples away. So Paul is clearly establishing that we are engaged in a spiritual warfare against an opposition that has the power to create havoc and misery in our lives. He's warning the church not to just see evil in the big things. Remember the temple of Artemis in Ephesus? Center of idolatry. Okay, that's easy to see, right? We can see pornography and we know ooh, that's a big sin, that's a big evil. We've got to avoid that. But not just the big things. The little things. Little things that chip away at our lives. It's the subtleness of Satan. It's the subtleness of his lies that trap us. Little everyday things that we just let slide. The problem is when we let those things slide day after day after day, a habit is developed. That's how habits are developed. A repetition and a rhythm a disordered or a destructive rhythm is formed in our life that we had no intention of creating, no desire to create, but by allowing those little things to slip past, those small bits of evil, we form those patterns. John Stott describes these powers as wicked, worldwide, and cunning. So how do you and I expect to stand against that? Someone who's wicked, worldwide, and cunning. It's impossible. We can't do it on our own. We are far too weak and far too ingenious. Yet many, if not most of our failures and defeats, are due to our foolish self-confidence. We place too much too much emphasis on our own abilities. Or we disbelieve. We just don't believe. Or we're lazy. I don't know, I'll let you pick your own answer. But it's going to fall into one of those categories. And the cunning of the devil takes many forms. But he's at his slipperiest. He's at his wiliest. When he succeeds in convincing us that he doesn't exist, that it's not real, some myth. Oh yeah, that was you know that was in the Old Testament, and and you know it was before Pentecost, but he doesn't exist anymore. To deny that reality is to expose ourselves to that subtlety that I'm talking about. Paul describes this battle as spiritual warfare. He says in verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These are the schemers of the devil. There's but one way that we can successfully stand, and Paul tells us in verse 10, we must be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He goes even further and tells us to put on the whole armor of God so that we can stand. So while we face an enemy who seriously does want to oppress us, an enemy that is much more powerful than us mere mortals, we can stand against the evil in the Lord's strength and might. Now this power that Paul talks about, this Lord's strength and might, we're going to go back to Ephesians 1 again where Paul began it all. It's the same power, it's the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, that resurrected Christ. That same spirit, that same power, rests with you and I. The same power that granted Christ rule and authority over all things. That's the power and the might that Paul is talking about to the church at Ephesus 
and to you and I. It's the power that we need for spiritual warfare. And we already possess it. It's not something we have to go get. It came with our adoption. General George Custer. I suppose most of you have heard of him. Custer was, hmm, how shall we say it? He was a great warfighter. He was a brilliant tactician. And man, was he arrogant. He thought quite highly of himself. And his activities in the Civil War only served to strengthen that. He was a successful field commander. So as the Civil War dies down, Guys like Custer, trained at West Point with a huge appetite for glory. He doesn't know what to do with himself. He's restless. Well, as Americans begin to head west, they start to encounter Native Americans. And the encounters do not go well. Americans are invading their homeland. And it's a controversy. So much so that the government takes notice of it and calls guys like Custer, we got a job for you now. So Custer is placed in charge of the 7th Cavalry, along with a few other generals. They are sent west to battle with the warriors of the plains. And part of the plan is for these large groups are going to marshal in a location, and Custer's, Custer's assigned role is to push them to this assigned location where they'll be surrounded. Well, Custer soon finds out that Civil War tactics did not work against the Native Americans. They didn't think the same. Their culture was different. The reason for fighting was somewhat different. Custer's tactics did not work. Now, as they're riding along, Custer scouts see a few lone riders, and Custer kind of goes into a panic. He is concerned that these riders would ride back to Sitting Bull in his encampment and tell them that Custer guy's on the way. So he separates his armies to surround these riders, and he's going to catch the riders. That's his little group's job. He's going to follow after him and catch him. He followed after him all right. Disregarding the plan that had already been put in place, Custer follows after these lone riders and he follows them right into Sitting Bull's trap. Custer found himself greatly outnumbered. 2,000 Sioux and Cheyenne warriors. When Custer's intelligence was that there were about 800. That's what his military intelligence was. He decides, I'm George Custer. We're going to fight. We're going to solve this problem now. As badly outnumbered as he is, Custer's intelligence was poor. His own intelligence and the military intelligence provided him. In about two hours, the entirety of Custer's battalion is destroyed, wiped out. George Custer included. Custer didn't understand his opposition. He went with his own reliance, his own self-reliance. I'm George Custer. I got this. He didn't understand the opposition. So Custer's failure, while there was a big failure, at his last stand. His failure began long before that with the little things, with his arrogance, with his pride, with his self-assurance. That was Custer's. Those were Custer's problems. Those were his mistakes. Those are the little mistakes that led to the big mistake. Now, you and I probably are not going into that kind of battle ever. I hope not. 
And even if we did, surely we would recognize that the odds were against us. We might call for reinforcements. We might change our strategy. We might do a lot of things differently. Surely we wouldn't follow Custer's path, would we? We wouldn't go into battle against an opponent we simply don't have any understanding of. We are in battle daily with an opposition far superior to us. And as I told you, the attacks aren't always obvious. He counts on that self-reliance that you and I have to lead us into traps. And as we've said, sometimes they're big, disastrous traps. But often, tiny, small sins disguised as good. Paul told us again in verse 11 and 13, take up the whole armor of God. You need it against this enemy. So we're reminded followers of Christ are going to encounter the devil's opposition. So we, we need to know how do we make a stand? How are we to do this? Now the Apostle Paul liked to use metaphors. He liked to use word pictures to describe ideas that he was talking about. And one of his favorite metaphors is this idea of putting on or putting off. He uses that phrase more than ten times just in his epistles alone. Now that phrase appears throughout the New Testament, by the way. Paul, it's not exclusive to Paul, but Paul is fond of it. He uses that same phrase when he's talking about the armor of God. It's, it's time to put on. Now, Paul doesn't give us a lot of help here in chapter 6. What does that mean to put on, Paul? This morning I got up and put on my clothes. Is that what you mean, Paul? If we just back up a little bit, we can see what Paul means by put on and put off. If we go back to chapter 4, verses 22 and 24, listen to what he says. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So we can see that putting off involves our former life. It's where we came from, a life that was corrupt with deceitful desires. And the new man that we've put on, the new person, is in the likeness of God in true righteousness. The reality is the entire section from chapter 4 right up to where we're at now, Paul is giving examples of what this putting on looks like, what this putting on Christ looks like. <clears throat> He's simply now going to use metaphors to describe these ideas, this armor. A picture of what we already possess, what we already own, what we already have. As I wrestled with this text, the idea became more and more clear. Paul is drawing us back through the book and pulling us forward with this conclusion. Talking about things he's already discussed. And chapter 6 is the pinnacle of that. It's a recapitulation that is designed to invoke a response. For example, the first piece of armor he tells us to put on is the belt of truth. Paul has already, he's using the metaphor, the belt, to represent the idea of truth. Has Paul talked about truth in this letter? Yeah. He's talked about it in chapter 1. He talked about it in chapter 4. You and I know the truth, right? Somebody comes to us with a Bible passage and say, it says this. But you know the truth. You know when it doesn't say that, it says this. You have the truth. We have the truth. It's in our hearts. He speaks of a breastplate of righteousness. Again, the breastplate is a picture. Righteousness is an idea he has discussed in chapter 4 and 5. He's talking about Christ's righteousness. The righteousness imputed to us as followers of Christ. He talks about shoes for our feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. 
Do you think Paul talks about the gospel in the letter to the Ephesians? It's everywhere. From beginning to end. The shield of faith. Paul talks about faith in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. So he continues this pattern all through the rest of these pieces of armor, using metaphors as word pictures of the things he's already told us about. I know you expect me to stand up here and describe each piece of armor for you. Oh, it comes from this and does this and does that. Paul's already told you. Read the book of Ephesians. He's already explained it. He's drawn it out. He's just giving us pictures now to understand it. So now that we understand we possess the armor, we're responsible to put it to use as weapons of spiritual warfare, it's probably going to be helpful to know what is the plan. How do these things function? The first thing we need to realize is that these armors, these weapons, is not designed specifically for the purpose of waging war. You can wage war with these things, but that's not Paul's intent here. Paul tells us to make a stand. He means for us to resist the devil. He's not talking about running out in the world trying to pound the devil on the head. He's talking about making a stand when the devil comes. And we rely on this armor, this power of God to make a stand. You know, James says all we have to do is resist the devil and he will flee from us. Oh, but how hard that is sometimes. How hard that is. How difficult that is. When our lives come unraveled, it's really hard. It's hard to keep our focus and be reminded that Satan is confronting us. He's attacking us. And it's even harder in those little tiny things, isn't it? Remember, this, this is the devil that the Bible says roams about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That someone is you. <laughs> it's me. That's who he's seeking to devour. Now Paul mentions one item as a metaphor that doesn't, it's not something put on your body to protect it. He talks about this sword. A warrior's sword goes in a sash in a belt. And it's drawn oftentimes. It can be defense or offense. And he describes this word of the Spirit as the Word of God. Isn't it interesting that sin and evil made its appearance into this world? Into a very peaceful place. A beautiful garden where a man and a woman worshipped God, had intimacy with God, there was no sin. Adam and Eve indeed lived in the best of times. And then this evil one that Paul's talking about, he makes an appearance. And with just a little twist of the scripture, has God really said? Adam and Eve fall for the trap. Satan twists scripture. They fall for the trap and this deception changed the world, and the worst of times are introduced. So our example, our counter to that, of course, is Christ when he goes into the desert and is tempted by Satan. How does he respond to Satan? With God's word. Not twisted, but rightly, rightly divided. He is the word. So this word is a significant part of our armor. It is the piece that requires your active obedience. You cannot absorb it like so. You can't put it under your pillow at night and sleep on it. We have to open it. We have to hide it in our heart. We have to put it in our heart. We have to take time to meditate on it, to understand it. And when we don't understand it, then we need to seek to understand it. We need to look for the answers. It's our greatest weapon. It's our greatest piece of armor. Paul's going to finish this, this um, exhortation and talk about prayer. 
And the only way all this works is if we bathe it with prayer and a reliance on the Holy Spirit. And not only are we to pray for ourselves, we're the body of Christ. We're to pray for each other. And I think we do a really good job of that here. I think we do a tremendous job of that here. Let us not forget to do so. Paul includes a prayer of, uh, or a request for prayer for himself. To go forward boldly with the gospel. Nobody had a more difficult path than Paul when it relates to taking the gospel forth. And this hearing, this final hearing that Paul is waiting for, the Spirit has already testified to him, it's not going to go well. It's not going to end well for you. And Paul knows that. He never asked the church at Ephesus for a thing while he was there with them. He only gave. But in this letter, he's asking for one thing. He's asking for one thing. I need your prayers. I need to apply the whole armor of God for what I'm about to face. Because when I go before them, I intend to preach the gospel. It is my hope to change their hearts and lives. In spite of what the Spirit has already testified to him, Paul is going to go down fighting. And he needs the prayers of the people. You know, police officers, I don't know if any of you have ever encountered one of them, they uh, are pretty easy to pick out, aren't they? They usually drive some kind of special vehicle with markings all over it. And some of you might have even seen the pretty lights they have on them. They have a uniform. So they're easily identified. We know who they are. Police officers, the smart ones, are issued a good bit of equipment before they go out onto the street. They have body armor or the bulletproof vest. There's a belt around the waist with all kind of cool things on it. I say cool things because I thought it was cool when I wore mine. Handcuffs, tasers, pepper spray, extra rounds of ammunition, a handgun, some other individual things that some officers might like to carry. Some officers like to wear boots, some like to wear shoes. I preferred a lightweight boot that supported my ankles in the event that running might become necessary, as it sometimes did. And some officers wear a hat. Everybody's issued a hat, but <clears throat> some officers couldn't tell you where their hat was the day after they got it. Most of this stuff is issued for defensive measures. Police officers, after all, are supposed to be peacekeepers, not peacebreakers. So the equipment is, is designed to defend them. One of the most important tools the officer has is not issued to him by his department. It's not a taser. It's not a handgun. It's a sharp mind. An officer's mind is trained. It's discipled in multiple things related to law enforcement, including how to survive. The mind is discipled through repetition. Continuous training and exercising the mind. Officers are routinely exposed to a variety of situations and training so that when they encounter these situations. You don't have to stop and think about it. The response is automatic. It's ingrained. It's become a habit. It's become a rhythm for survival. Now the first line of defense are their words. Officers interact with people when they encounter them in a positive or negative manner. And if it's a negative manner, then they become verbal commands. It's the first it's, the, it's our first level in the force continuum. So words are important. Now they come into play in another way. And I purposely held back one of the items that goes on this belt. And that's a radio. 
That is the officer's connection to other officers, to other agencies, to their central dispatch, their control center. It's the lifeline. It is communication with someone else. You and I have equipment issued to us, don't we? We've seen that in this epistle. Our minds are developed. They're discipled. They're important. It's how we engage God's Word through the Spirit. It's where our discipleship training begins and continues. It's how we learn right from wrong. It's the instrument we use to hide God's Word in our heart. And just like a police officer has that radio to call for help, we have prayer. We can call on God anytime we want for help, for encouragement, for strength. When our faith is struggling, when we wrestle with unbelief, it's so simple. Stop and do it. It doesn't have to be recharged. It's always there. It's by prayer this morning that you accept and understand that the enemy is real. The evil powers of darkness have not slipped away into the night, never to return. Satan thrives in the darkness. It's his plan to lure us into the darkness at every opportunity. It's his intent to cause us to stumble so that we may not walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling. In a sense, he seeks to oppress us. He seeks to oppress the freedom that we have been granted in Christ Jesus. He seeks to turn our best of times into the worst of times. He wants to dominate our lives. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones expressed his conviction about the devil and how the church has been dismissive. He says, I'm certain that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today is the fact that the devil's been forgotten. He's expressing the idea that the church has cast Satan and all this evil stuff aside. Some of you are old enough, because I know I am, to remember a comedian by the name of Flip Wilson. What was Flip Wilson's famous line? The devil made me do it. Now that was funny at the time. It's still funny. But there's some truth to that. There's some truth behind that. You, me, are responsible for the actions. But we did it because we allowed Satan to slip through. We allowed him to drip by drip come into our world. He works through events, agencies, social media, through people, you name it, Satan works that way. He works through whatever means is available. And it's not always attacks against us. That's what we like to think of this morning. Ugh, I'm going to put on this armor of God Mike talked about and keep the devil from attacking me. And tomorrow we go and we attack someone else. See, we already let that evil through, didn't we? We become an agent of Satan. And we attack others through our emotions, our anger, our selfishness, our own pride. Things like a a look, a snarky comment, manipulating a situation so that it turns in your favor, or more intentional acts designed to offend. I did this to offend you. I want you to know that. Doing things to intentionally complicate someone else's life out of a spirit of revenge. So the armor is designed to protect you from those things. But let's remember, it's designed to prevent you from doing those things. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Don't let him disguise you as an angel of light. Thomas Brooks, one of the Puritan writers, talked about just how deceptive sin is in his work titled Precious Remedies. He speaks about how sin sneaks into our day, drip by drip, unnoticed, brushed aside. The danger is that it becomes easy. The more we justify small things, 
the easier it becomes to fall into greater sins. Don't be like the sons of Siva that we read about in Acts. That when Satan encounters you, he doesn't say to you, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize, but who are you? Make him know who you are. Make him know I can be identified. I have the armor of God on. I stand in the power and might of Christ Jesus. I can be identified as readily as a police officer on the street because of who I am, what I possess, and what I wear, and how you see me interact with others. Spiritual forces are marshaled against us. They, they just are. We have, to, we have to accept that, and we cannot underestimate his power. We do live in what could be described as the best of times and the worst of times. But unlike the oppressed in the Dickens novel, who resorted to violence and evil behavior, we've been equipped through Christ Jesus to make a stand in the truth with the righteousness of Christ knowing full well the gospel of peace and reconciliation. For we have been saved by grace through faith as a gift from God. We have all we need through Christ to stand against the enemy. Pray with me now. Father, we give thanks again for your word, for your mighty and powerful revelation of yourself to us. May we fill our hearts with your words. May the eyes of our hearts be enlightened by your spirit and through your holy word. May your words resonate with us each day as we make our stand against the evil one. For the sake of Christ and in his name we pray. Amen.